This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I don't know about you, but even though there's unlimited information available online, I tend to learn best by doing things and actually getting my hands dirty. If you're interested in making the leap from screens to the land, then I've got some exciting learning events for you. I'm going to be teaching two of my favorite subjects this upcoming autumn at the Green Rebel Farm in beautiful Miravet, Spain. The first course is a weekend intensive on regenerative agroforestry designed for people who want to try their hands at a range of different tree planting and orchard maintenance skills. We'll cover the whole range from reading a landscape and propagating plants to planning a planting project, getting trees in the ground, maintaining a growing system, and even pruning a grown forest. The best part is that all of these are based on activities to advance a real farm. The second event is a five-day deep dive into the regenerative design process, again with a focus on agroforestry. This course is designed for people who are either considering buying land or who are at the early stages of developing a site and want to ensure that they get off on a profitable regenerative trajectory. We'll work through the scale of permanence, learning to gather essential information about the landscape, vegetation, and soil. From there, we'll work through hydrological capture and restoration, planning for productive planting and reforestation, business considerations, soil health regeneration, and much more. All of this too will be taught through hands-on activities, so you leave not only knowing how to develop an effective and profitable design, but also with experience with the work and skills required to get things done. This weekend agroforestry intensive will be from Friday the 16th through Sunday the 18th of September. And the design workshop goes from Tuesday the 11th to Sunday the 16th of October. So don't start your project with digital learning alone. Come and get your hands dirty with inspiring, like-minded people and level up your skills this autumn. You can learn more by clicking at the link at regenerativeskills.com or on the link tree in the bio on our Instagram. Early bird discounts are now open, so don't hesitate. And I'll see you in the orchard soon. Hey there and welcome back everybody. Now this week I wanted to get back to one of my favorite formats from the early days of this show in which I just take time to speak with some of my close friends and collaborators about what we're working on. So today I grabbed my good friends Nick Steiner and Jacob Evans. Now Nick is one of my closest colleagues in my work with Climate Farmers. He leads the academy at the company and has spearheaded the coach matching service where we put farmers in touch with other farmers and experts who can help them in their transition to regenerative agriculture. He also recently invested in a property in Tenerife, the largest of the Canary Islands, and has been renovating an off-grid homestead there for the last several months. Now Jacob is another close friend of mine, and earlier this year we taught an introductory course on syntropic agroforestry at the Green Rebel Farm in Miravet, Spain. Jacob has been teaching syntropic agroforestry for arid climates and managing the farm at Siralila Yoga Retreat Center for the last few years. He is also in the early stages of a big transition as he moves his young family back to Argentina where his wife is from, and he'll be starting a small farm there later this year. He also has a lot of experience setting up and running food production systems in the challenging climate of southern Spain. So the reason why I wanted to call on these guys is because most of the clients that come to me and the students that join in my courses are working towards a big transition onto the land. Some are in the early stages of considering buying land and starting a farm. Others are actively looking for property and some have already bought their place and are beginning the development process. 
So as a result, I get tons of questions about how to choose a property, what important things they should be looking for, what to prepare for and be aware of, and how to avoid mistakes, etc. I, of course, myself am in the process of working to move onto a property in the mountains of central Catalonia in Spain, and I'm drawing from my own learning journey from the past when I began my first homestead with my colleagues in Guatemala almost five years ago. I know now that there are so many things that I would do differently with the more knowledge that I have and hindsight. So because of all this shared experience that me and the other guys have in common with making and preparing this type of lifestyle transition, I wanted to have an in-depth chat about what the most important learnings that we gained from these experiences are. We also talk a lot about what we'll be drawing from in our new endeavors and the advice or guidance that we would give our former selves based on what we learned from so many mistakes and blunders in our previous processes. It's really interesting to me to understand the patterns and the commonalities that come out even from the different circumstances and motivations that we've had and that I've heard from all of my students and clients over the years. So if you're exploring this topic and want to hear more about it even later after this episode, I've posted the details for the upcoming Instagram live session that I'll be doing with Nick this weekend on Saturday evening. There we'll be answering listener questions about learnings and important considerations when looking for land in the country and the reality of making that kind of a lifestyle transition. So be sure to check it out because we'd love to see you there. So with all of that out of the way, let's get started with the first of what I hope will be a lot more regenerative roundtable sessions. Awesome to have you guys here. It's really fun to catch up again. This is the first time we're doing it, all three of us together. Uh, Both of you are people that I speak with on a regular basis and are good friends, but it's really fun to connect like-minded people and talk about things that we have in common. And to get us started, let's do some little introductions for people who haven't heard about us. Like Nick, this is your first time on the show. Uh, but Jacob, this is your second episode. And so if anybody wants to learn more in depth about what you've done in the past and your focus on Centropic Agroforestry, I'll put the link to that episode in the show notes for this so they can check you out. Um, but why don't you give us a little update? Cause you're going through some transitions in your life right now. Tell us a little bit about your background and what's going on. So, yeah, I've been going through quite a bit of transition and it's still on the way. So I was from June 2016 to the end of 2020, the farm manager out of the yoga retreat center in Andalusia in southern Spain. Um, I left that. I had sort of a, a year out being a father while I was looking for new projects in western Spain, decided that that area wasn't for us either. was doing a bit of intermediary work in a market garden the last year and decided actually the best option for us, my wife is from... Uh, Patagonia, Argentina, from a very interesting town where there's a lot of permaculture and natural building, interesting projects going on. So we actually decided to take the plunge and move to a little town in northern Patagonia called El Bolson, where we have already family, friends and a lot of social capital waiting for us after about six, seven years in Spain now. So, yeah, transcontinental move is coming up to a new climate and uh, new possibilities. Super exciting, man. We're going to dig into that in a minute. Uh, well, let's go to Nick Steiner, my man, who I work with very closely at Climate Farmers. We work on the academy and building services for farmers switching to regenerative transitions here in Europe together. Nick, why don't you give us a little of your personal background as well as the project that you're working on right now? Absolutely. Yeah, such a pleasure to be here after listening for, for so many years. Um, yeah, I started out kind of in the, in the countryside, so just on the border of Hamburg, northern Germany, 
always been out in the fields uh, as a child. And yeah, kind of through documentaries, I realized, okay, this whole climate thing seems to be something relevant. Maybe we should do something about it. And I realized quite quickly that it helps to get together with a lot of good people if you want to get stuff done. And just sitting around the campfire and complaining doesn't really change anything. Um, so that's why I decided to study uh, business and actually use that as a tool for change. And yeah, while, while studying, somehow I stumbled upon um, a book uh, by Zeb Holzer about permaculture. It was actually, ah, yeah, it was on Philip's toilet, Philip, our co-worker. There I found my first book about permaculture and read it and was like, wow, this stuff makes so much sense. Um, and so after university, uh, because I studied in, in the Netherlands and Amsterdam, I wanted it a bit warmer. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I moved to Tenerife, so on the Canary Islands. And yeah, it's beautiful. It's warm, it's everything. But there on the farm where I work, and I did some woofing to get some practical experience also with this whole permaculture thing. Um, and realized, wow, we have 10 days of rain a year, extremely brittle, uh, 280 millimeters. So like hardly anything, I think for the listeners in the US, I think it's around 11 inches, if my conversion is, is correct. Um, yeah, so there I realized, wow, water is, is such an important thing. Um, and I got super into the whole thing of uh, growing food forests, of how to build soil, how to do water management, all these kind of kind of aspects. And then I wanted to plant a food forest. Um, so I did that then at another farm where I was volunteering. Um, and in that time, I also did a lot of um, volunteer management because I was there for quite some time and new people came in. And I think we did a calculation at some point it was over 120 volunteers in that time that I was involved with. And during that, I realized like, oh, I really like telling people about regeneration and kind of instructing them on how to do it and, and what to do. And out of that evolved some kind of workshops and yeah, and more and more into that direction. And since I was always in contact with um, our good friend, Philip, because we worked on a different project. And then one day he told me about this new company idea that he had called Climate Farmers, where he wanted to revolutionize kind of agriculture in Europe um, together with a friend. And that sounded really interesting. I realized like, hey, education might be important for that. Uh, and so I joined climate farmers at the yeah at the very beginning and yeah then when when COVID hit I went back to Germany for a little while did a lot of home office there for permaculture but yeah I really missed the sun and missed everything so now in March uh, I moved back to Tenerife finally got my own little property uh, off-grid very degraded but yeah I'm, I'm back here and now I'm fully experiencing what it's like to live an off-grid life in a very dry environment. For sure, man. It's been really cool to watch you in this transition process as you moved out there very recently. You've only been there a handful of months now. And I know you have experience on the island, but you're also in somewhat of a bit of a microclimate within the island and a very, very small watershed. And we've been working together to look at the options that you have, as well as on the course that we're both taking together on uh, hydrological restoration. So we'll get into that again in a minute. But I guess we should come back to the reason why I'm talking to you two guys, and that's to explore some of the knowledge and the experience that we've all gained in making this transition to live out in rural places. In your case, Nick, off-grid. I've been off-grid in the farm that I had in Guatemala for a little while. Uh, Jacob, you've moved around a number of times as well. I guess, where should we start? I mean, there, there's so many different angles and perspectives that we could look at this from, and everybody's journey is different. What have been some of the biggest, maybe 
reality checks or wake up calls that you learned when you did it the first time or that you didn't expect? Jacob? Well, definitely the people aspect of it. If you're going to be living off the grid and really starting one of these projects from the ground up, the people aspect is highly, highly important um, because we all have expectations. And a lot of the times other people have different ideas and different expectations. And when these don't match, you can quite often be rowing in different directions and that can cause a lot of, uh, how do you say, it's um, stalls of development and maybe even goes backwards. So it's very important to have your human element of it very well organized it's easy to come into this with a lot of idealism when it's taken me many years for reality and idealism to sort of become more uh, parejo more equal and i guess oliver you could say some similar things about that yeah for sure i mean let's face it it's the reason why i'm in spain and not guatemala still is those breakdowns of communication and difficulties of coming to agreements with the original people that you might have started an endeavor with, whether those are like romantic partners or their family members. In my case, it was uh, close friends. And I still consider them friends, but our agreement on what we went into the project with about the vision of what we had, a lot of it wasn't put on paper. A lot of it wasn't formalized in agreements. And, you know, when that starts to break down, friendships are tested and expectations lead to disappointment and conflict and such and that's really hard to navigate especially if you don't have much experience with it and so that's definitely one of the things that i was challenged by in that project in particular but i've also seen it play out tons of times in client projects um because regardless of where you're coming from whether like you co-own a piece of land that's been in your family for a while and you're close with those people oftentimes people's long-term goals or expectations for the place are not formalized. You think, well, I talk with these people all the time, or we've been doing this for a long time. We're definitely on the same page. We understand each other. And that's rarely the case. I think it's even less common for people who know each other well and have an inherent trust based on existing relationships than people who come into it, let's say, from a business perspective or something that is much less personal. Uh, those goals and those expectations tend to be communicated better because it's not assumed that they know what each other's thinking or what they're trying to get out of a project. Uh, so that kind of communication is something that I've learned a lot about, both from experience and then, of course, needing to research it and get caught up after, you know, having it fall apart with, uh, with what I did. And then I guess the second one would be the concept of what people think resilience is in rural life is often a very romanticized concept that comes from social media and Instagram and what people talk about from a urban perspective. Um, but very quickly, you're going to get forced to think longer term than you're used to because conveniences are not around. You can't just pop down to the store and get something new. Uh, or if you do, it's costly, either in time or in money or both. And you have to start making decisions of like, okay, what am I going to need for the next couple of weeks or to finish this project or um, to accomplish something that I can't just run back and forth and get all the time. And that was really valuable for me to learn. And even though I'm you know, currently living in an apartment with conveniences very nearby, that experience served me really well when the pandemic came up. Uh, my partner and I were able to prepare even before people started to rush the stores and everything fell off the shelves. Um, and we didn't even have to leave our house to go to get toilet paper or to get groceries for over three months. 
And I don't know anybody else who's, you know, other than like preppers, but you know, that's another thing. Um, and yeah, that, those are direct experiences I got from just living far away from a lot of stuff where you, you can't make those quick decisions or impulse buys. You have to think about it a lot more far in advance. What about you, Nick? Like, like you said, you grew up kind of living in the country and you've gone back and forth from cities and now to an island, which I mean, that, that's a whole context in and of itself. What have been some of the things that have really uh, been big learnings for you in the transition? Yeah, I would say the <clears throat> the big learnings, there are three main ones. Um, so kind of the, the first one I experienced when I first moved here to the first farm, uh, which was off-grid, so complete uh, solar um, solar power. And there the issue was just sometimes because it was in a region of the of the island where we get quite a bit of cloud cover. And sometimes when the sun doesn't shine for two weeks, the batteries run out. And yeah, then well, you're out of power. So which is a bit of a bit of a pity. Um, the the things that ran out the first was okay, washing machine needed quite a bit of power, the one we had. So we could only use it when the sun was really shining, but I don't really mind when you live on a farm, you don't really care about clean clothing too much. But then when the other things run out, you know, then you have to be a bit careful about how often do you open the fridge door because you don't want all the <laughs> all the cold to escape. And yeah, those things, be I became more conscious. Like, do I really need this electrical appliance or do I really need to use this now or can it, can it wait? So I think that was the first one, electricity. You become much more aware of how much you're using and what you really need. Um, the second thing I learned there was planning when you need to buy things. Because for us, it was quite a trip uh, to the hardware store when we needed to buy any supplies. And yeah, before, you know, you're used to living in a city or something when you forget something. Well, it sucks, but it's maybe half an hour and, and you can get it. But there, it was sometimes like a one and a half hour drive one way to the hardware store. So you really don't want to forget things. Um, then the same happened um, at a project in Portugal where we were living with, with a few friends. There, the closest supermarket is 45 minutes away. So also there, you really plan your shopping well. So you really want to make sure you don't forget any essentials. And you learn to, to cook and live with less things. So you need to become really good at, at improvisation. And you're also responsible for everything. You know, if a water line breaks, you're the plumber. Um, if something goes wrong with the electricity, you're the electrician. Um, so due to YouTube, I learned a lot of things because either you do it or it doesn't happen. Um, so those were very big learnings. And now at the new place here on Tenerife, um, my biggest concern at the moment is water because the property has a big water tank, um, but it's limited. So it's only fed by rain. And since April, we didn't really get any significant rain. And I think the tank has around 20,000 liters. I'm uh, not sure what that is in gallons, um, but yeah, it's, it's not that much. And you really see it uh, go down every day and all the roofs are not yet connected to the tank. So I still have to add rain gutters and, and all these kind of things to make the place more water resilient and to build that up. But it's a real concern. So when you, when you have a limited amount of water and when it's gone, it's like gone, gone. There's, there's no other way to get water. Um, and so I'm really careful about what I'm planting, how I'm planting and how connected everything to gray water. Um, I'm trying to use every drop as many times as possible. And that's a reality check that's really crucial because like water is not just for fun and plants, but it's also the water we drink. Um, yeah, and I think that's something people forget. Like off-grid life can be amazing, but you really have to learn to limit your consumption and yeah, also your, your quality of life in, in some senses. 
Yeah, that's what I remember too from a few times living off grid. One was in the desert outside of Taos, New Mexico, that similarly just had a cistern. And you start to understand the real value of <laughs> the resources and the energy that come into a space and how, I guess, by default, we're used to using them without even thinking about the quantity, right? Maybe you think about the quantity of energy because it raises on your bill or you know, for some people, it makes a difference on their water bill as well, but it's usually not significant enough that you get into rationing in normal times. But let's face it, I mean, we're the three of us coming off of what has been a very significant drought here in Western Europe. And we're looking at the possibility of, and some of us are already experiencing water rationing and other resource rationing. And one of the overall effects of that too is that the capacity of hydroelectric dams currently is like half of its capacity which is definitely going to show up on people's uh, electricity bill pretty soon. And we just can't take our resources for granted the way we used to. I like that, Nick, that you mentioned both electricity and water as your concerns when you're in in an off-grid situation. I've talked to a lot of other people who've set up off-grid communities and such, and they've all said the same thing, like electricity is nice to have, but get your water system dialed in first, because you can do without cell phone service, you can do without a refrigerator, uh, but what are you going to drink when your water runs out? So put your energies into the essentials and then start working on the extras. And also try and make sure that your water supply is not dependent on your electricity supply because it's often much more fragile. What about you, Jacob? Have you, have you had to make these types of, you know, real survival type considerations in the different places you've lived? Um, mostly before, previously, when I'd be traveling and we'd have to cross a river to get to the the place where we're living on the farm this chocolate farm in brazil and we we're cooking on firewood and it was a canoe ride across the river yeah without electricity um and it was a great month i can more romanticize about it as it was more in my earlier days um and i mean in rancho mastertal in costa rica we would cook the breakfast on the biogas but we knew that that's all the biogas would give for us then the rest of the day we would have to switch to propane so we got a kind of homeostasis and it never really ran out as long as someone was putting the cow manure in the digester, which we were very conscious of every day. We had to put that manure in and make a slurry and empty the end. Um, but it does get you in touch and you start to really think about your energy coming in and, and your management. Um, but where I was actually on the previous project, uh, farm manager, they would actually buy watering in the summer. So south of Spain, uh, very heavy water use, but because it was a, a yoga hotel as well as a permaculture project, they could actually bring water in from down the road where there was a big aquifer. Um, but it's not a long-term solution, which was quite frustrating to see all the toilets being flushed and then I'm trying to use minimal water outside. So also uh, in incoherence as well between projects that are supposed to be supporting each other yeah so well well so i've worked with different yoga centers and such as well and it's really cool i think that they integrate environmental projects or farming projects in with them but there is often still quite a disconnect or a misunderstanding between the people who patron those businesses and a cohesion with the environmental limitations of where they happen to be and that's certainly not exclusive to the yoga crowd. In fact, they're some of the better ones. 
but especially when we travel to a new place, for some reason, we forget <laughs> that resources that are essential where we live are sometimes even more at risk in some of these hot spots, these beautiful tourist areas that might be aesthetically pleasing, but increasingly strained as to the resources that can support the people that descend on them in certain seasons, especially like in Spain in the summer. That's when it's the most difficult. And you know really well because you've also worked with farmers of that region and with your designs in Syntropic Agroforestry about the, well, the catastrophe of what is happening to aquifer depletion in that area of Spain and the use of it above ground as well. Can you talk a little bit about what that situation looks like right now? Yeah, I mean, recently we've seen the phenomenon of this super intensive olive and almond plantations where they're dwarf varieties of trees planted in windrows. They scrape the soil up and then do drip irrigation between, which is completely puzzling where the water is even coming from, which is a, a draining aquifer. Um, all the planting again these tiny dwarf olive trees that can survive on basically zero rain but propped up with chemicals as well but it's just again buy now pay later and then the, the super weeds if you like are going to be even stronger that come up afterwards and the land's going to end up being unusable for a time until it can accumulate sufficient soil carbon and fertility again because the ability to hold moisture is just it's almost non-existent on a lot of agricultural soils anyway, that when that rain does come, as most listeners will be aware, that just runs off. Um, so there's just a, a very strong concern about lack of organic matter in the soil. But I also see the huge potential, like on the degraded roadsides of these fields, you see the wildflowers in the spring getting up to you know one and a half, two meters tall, whereas in the field, the wheat's only about 30 centimeters. So if um, the the wildflowers can do that then there's still some strong genetics around and ability to to bring the biomass back in a few short seasons big change is possible but the summers are so long and dry in these places the south of spain tenerife and those places that things take so long on a human scale that i'm very excited to be going somewhere with a bit cooler weather and a bit more moisture that it's just going to feel really easy um, so it's it's good to start on really hard places to get sort of you know that slap in the face. Okay, you're coming from Northern Europe and you're just used to <laughs> moisture and cooler weather, uh, but this is how it is down here, and uh, it's good to have the extremes so you can choose somewhere in the middle. For sure. Well, so Nick, I mean that's everything that you have to consider with your situation and. You've worked especially with agroforestry systems and you're in the process of planting a food forest. That is such a hot little concept right now. Everybody wants a food forest. There's books written about it. I've just interviewed a whole bunch of people about this on the series. And I, you know, of course I'm a huge fan of planting perennial plants and putting fruit and nuts and all kinds of other food producing perennials into a system. But you and I both know how important it is to plant the rain, plant the water before you start putting those plants in. Can you talk a little bit more about the, I guess, the prep and the, the planning, given the, the little bit of water that you have access to that you're going through to make sure that once you put the plants in the ground, that there's actually something to keep them there alive? 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think for me there, the, the biggest learning was um, also the, the first farm or, or more or less homestead uh, where I volunteered because there the owners um, had an amazing eye for kind of beauty, so to say. So the place was super beautiful and there was a strong will to just have a ton of variety, lots of beautiful. So they planted insane amounts of plants. Um, but mostly kind of plants that um, also use a lot of nutrients and use a lot of water. So, so not really many support plants and those kind of things. Um, so it, it got a lot more from, from the time when, when I was there and kind of telling about the importance of mulching and, and support plants and all this. Um, but still, there are so many things planted and um, I've just visited them. And yeah, they're also off grid and now they have to use, they told me every two weeks, they need to buy 15,000 liters of water to keep their plants alive, which is huge. And it's, it has to come via, via truck. So it's quite expensive. And so that really kind of, uh, yeah, taught me how to be careful with what you put in the ground, because once it's planted, you need to take care of it. Um, and so what I'm doing a lot is I'm now starting lots of local seeds. So whenever I leave the house, I have a, I have a bag with me to collect seeds of, of kind of local nitrogen fixing varieties that I see around, they're adapted. Um, and yeah, I'm collecting just everything I can. And I'm growing these at the moment in, uh, in kind of air prune beds that I build in a system with sub-irrigation. So really to use as little water as possible and also not to have too much evaporation. So I'm just growing these now because I want to start with the ones that can survive. Um, and I'm running experiments with, I think I have like six, six trees of different varieties, also fruiting varieties that I put into the ground just to test in different places. So I have one kind of hotspot of growth, I would say that's the gray water of our shower, because there I know I have to shower, so there will be water available. Um, so I'm using that to grow a lot of plants there and to see how they grow. Uh, then I have one for the gray water from the kitchen. There I'm also growing a lot of seeds. So I just put a mulch basin that all the water runs in. I just put lots of seeds in to just get them started because it's basically, yeah, the water will be there anyway. So there I'm growing a lot. Um, but yeah, for me, the biggest focus is just support plants. So I really, I have hardly anything that requires water. Just a few avocados because I had the seeds. So I just put them in, in soil and, and they're coming up. Um, yeah, but that for me, is the biggest learning and that's also the strategy that I'm running here. So really support plants first, get that biomass going, um, get the shade going. So I will start with that also very resistant plants so that I can slowly start regeneration. I can slowly prepare the soil. I can slowly cool it down. And then over time, I will introduce more of the plants that, that, that will then also produce food. Um, one plant I'm really excited about uh, is the ice cream bean. So Inga, I uh, don't know the, the Latin name at the moment, maybe one of you remembers, but yeah, that one is also close to the shower, producing like crazy. And that one for me, it's going to be a nitrogen fixer. It produces a lot of biomass, will produce a lot of shade, and I'm also excited to eat it. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to see, are there some nitrogen fixing support plants that I can also eat? So yeah, really stacking, stacking those functions. And yeah, for me, I would say to, to put it really short, I don't plant anything where I'm not sure I can care for it and make sure it gets enough water to, to survive and rather slow. Um, yeah. Then over the top planting everything and suddenly I run into problems of, of keeping things alive. Yeah. And the way that you're doing it too, it's so low risk. 
I mean, you're going around getting free seeds from things that you already know grow in your area and you're trying them out really low budget, very simple, minimal maintenance, very similar to like Mark Shepard's stun method, right? If they die, cool, that's something that I learned and they shouldn't have been there anyway, right? Um, and I like the way that Jacob, you've articulated this in the past, like when we taught that Centropic Agroforestry course with the Green Rebel Farm in Tarragona, how you're talking about being in an accumulation phase at the beginning. Everybody wants to go in there and plant their delicate hybrid peach trees in the middle of a desert and that's a food forest. But there's a reason why there's such low success rates when you start that way. You need to accumulate not only the nutrition, but also the moisture that these more delicate, higher production plants that we like to have for our own use can get established. What are some of the steps that you've learned, especially in the challenging area of, of Cadiz, that needs to be done before you can start to integrate those more delicate varieties? So you really need to be present where you are in the succession of the system. So in Syntropy, we talk a lot about the placenta phase, placenta one, placenta two, your annuals, and then your short-lived perennials, going up to your secondary forest, and then onto you, well, even you've got your early, mid, late secondary, and then you climax forest. So it's like you can't run before you can walk. You do A, B, C, D through the alphabet before you X, Y, Z. And a lot of people, yeah, they just want to put the avocado, the lemon or the walnut in and walk away. There you go. But um, when you've got bare degraded soil, you just can't do that. Luckily for us, we can be producing food from you know, the first few months in the placenta phase all the way through. So as you've both been saying, less is more, being able to focus on a much smaller area and manage it well while producing food within the first months with annuals, but incorporating those perennials in with it and actually moving through succession in place um, has been an invaluable lesson for me because always where I've focused my energy on smaller areas in incorporating annual plants with perennials and focusing the organic matter so maybe doing 10 meter spacing between rows of food and then all that 10 meters of biomass gets put onto the one meter of row of uh, the syntropic rows rather than doing a tree row every four or five meters and scrambling for biomass because that is what brings you forward in succession that as you mentioned the accumulation phase so I've been really humbled into that really because I've lost you know I must have lost a few thousand plants over the time <laughs> um, and just seeing that first firsthand and really choosing those learning to choose the plants that grow really well in my area by the side of the road and they've been the most successful and the cheapest way to do it luckily when I was project I was managing for five years it was someone else paying the bills and it was pretty low risk for me and I've got a lot to show for it of the uh, um, things that have gone well and things that haven't gone so well. Uh, and I stayed there long enough to really see seasons change. That's the other thing. When you're just starting out, you haven't seen the seasons change. So you don't really know your environment unless you've already been observing it previously. If you're in a new place, especially Northern Europeans coming to the South, it's very easy to idealize these fruit food forests and how things were before. But often we don't realize that with the heat comes the, the water scarcity and uh, when we're just not used to it in the urban living in, in Northern Europe. Yeah, for sure. And that's why I like Nick's approach to this is, you know, the easy wins in the beginning. Like I've had so many people that I've worked with 
get discouraged at the beginning because they got a whole bunch of those delicate fruit trees and they all died or they were planting, you know, tomatoes in dead soil. And they're like, oh, I just don't have a green thumb. You know, I, I, this doesn't work for me. And I've even actually seen the opposite too, where people are like, oh, how did this plant die? It's a succulent or it's a cactus. I can't even keep these things alive. How in the world am I going to keep a fruit tree alive? I'm like, well, you know, where do those things normally grow? And what environment are you growing them? If you're growing cactus in a shady, damp, cold apartment, maybe it's not your fault. Maybe you just need to put it in an area that's more conducive to its growth. And that extrapolates all the way up into an ecosystem too. You know, if the things that you're really hoping to get a yield out of, or, you know, even for aesthetic beauty are poorly positioned because you don't understand the needs of the plant. It's not that you have a, uh, you know, you don't have a green thumb. It's like, you just need to learn a little bit more about how, how to make your job easier, you know, uh, but people quickly get discouraged. And that's why, you know, like Nick's doing, have those quick wins, you know, plant some hardy stuff, throw in some seeds, throw in some things with minimal risk and learn from that and be there for a little while in order to start to build that not body of knowledge. Um, because it also goes into the other thing that I get all the time from clients, and especially because I've been helping a lot of people recently design agroforestry systems and food, uh, uh, food forests, is, you know, you start with your context. What are you actually capable of doing? Many people are only on their site for a small portion of the year, or they go there for holidays, or they go there for weekends, and they're like, okay, I want to have food security and all of my food produced from this site but I want it to be zero maintenance and start from scratch and just have these things going within two or three years. And it's like, well, a lot of those desires are conflicting with one another. You can have a couple of them, but you can't have them all at the same time. And you need to build the fertility and the capacity for life on your site before things can start to move into a low maintenance stage. Um, it can get there, but it can't get there from the beginning with only delicate species when <laughs> you're only visiting it like two or three times a year, you know. Uh, so having real ex realistic expectations is also absolutely essential. Um, and so kind of with that, what have been some of the, uh, I guess, realities of this dream of moving to the country to become more self-sufficient that have come back down to earth for you the first time that you did it, that you're integrating into this new transition. So I guess since you're the furthest along into this new transition, Nick, I'll start with you. What are some of the approaches and things you're doing differently this time around from what you've learned in the, in the past? Um, yeah, I think this time I'm trying to be more patient and observe more. Um, because I'm generally quite impatient. I just want to do things and constantly work and, and get stuff done. Um, but yeah, one of the main things that, that was taught also in this whole regeneration movement is you should be on a site for one year, like observe all the seasons before you do any major changes and implement any, any major things. And I'm really trying to do that. So it's still a bit of time until March, but I'm trying to keep my, my hands and feet still um, up to that point. So that's something I, I definitely learned. Um, also now I really want to start with the bigger things being, being earthworks. Um, so it is quite challenging here because the property is really steep, uh, at the bottom of a, of a valley. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm extremely glad to be, uh, in the water stories course with, uh, Zach Wise, as you're also part of it. Um, it's incredible. So, 
I'm really excited to also use that course to, to design this property a bit more and then see if already this season I will already implement a few things before the rainy season or over the coming years. So that's a big change. So really, I want to plant the rain first, so to say. So how much water can I harvest? Because that will then give me an idea about what I can plant. Um, and I think that that's the biggest thing. Like, I don't want to plant if I can't take care of it. And that's also related to, to vegetables. Um, so I have the goal of maybe becoming 70, maybe at some point 80% self-sufficient. Um, not sure I will be able to grow grains, but that, that's kind of a long-term goal. Um, but for now, for me, the main priority is not having to spend too much time on it since I'm, I'm really busy with the property and also our work at Climate Farmers. So what I switch to is I just built um, a big system of using self-watering kind of wicking wicking pods and I connected them all to a float valve and to a rain tank. So basically I have all these, all these um, pots that I can grow vegetables in that I don't need to do anything with. So I left the property for one month. I came back, everything grew fantastically. Uh, and so that's kind of my approach now. So I want vegetables, but I definitely don't want to be out here when it's when it's 40 degrees all the time watering multiple times a day, because at some point when I'm gone, things will die. Um, so that's my approach. Have less. So I'm, I'm happy about every tomato at the moment and every every bit of lettuce. Um, I want to expand those systems because it's also kind of prototype stage. Um, yeah, but that's that's a big learning. Like I'm not, I haven't set up any big vegetable beds in the garden yet because I know just how much work and how much water it will take to to keep things growing. And yeah, I've, as I said before, rather have a little bit less, but do it right and yeah, keep it alive than plant crazy amounts and be super excited, but then spend all day there and waste all your water uh, due to evaporation. Um, so yeah, th those have been my approach. Jacob, how is it? How's it for you? Um, well, now I'm going to a completely new context. So from what I've uh, learned, similar lessons to what I've gone about, really, I talk about sort of where I'm going to go with this. So I'm moving to a, in, in the center of town. We're going to have about 300 square meters of space to start with before we find possibly bigger piece of land in the next, in the medium term. So I'm going to look at those instant wins or the easy wins. Start with some annuals, maybe a small flock of, hens where I can get eggs within a short time, maybe have a, a little rabbit tree where I can have you know, a, a breeding pair or maybe one or two females and start producing food where I am. But I'm really going to be looking to build relationships. That's going to be the biggest one and, and think, where can I add value to my community? Because where I'm going, it's going to be about it. It's a small city now. It's 40,000 people. And I'm going to look, okay, how can my skills be of value in this community rather than going with an ideal, uh, I want to do this, I want to regenerate the land and save the world and look, okay, how can I have the ideal? How can I use that within the context of my community and help that and be add value over the longer term and integrate myself rather than being that foreigner that's come in with all these crazy ideas and wants to change everybody? Um, which is quite exciting because I've got an opportunity to work with a market garden. They're gardening on one hectare of really nice soil with decent water supply as well. Um, and they've got a small tractor where they're using to make 85 centimeter wide beds. So pretty much the standard market garden width. They're doing 40 meter long beds, but it's a bit more high production than your um, rotivator ones with your BCS and things because the tractor just allows you to do a bit the bed's a bit easier 
and there's already three socios. So I've already been offered the chance to get in on that and start a, a greens enterprise. So again, that's a small win. I can be producing greens within a couple of months. And there's also quite a lot of restaurant and demand for salad, I've been told. So it's it's a low risk as well that I'm going to look at so trying out with when I get there and see how it goes. Um, but it's not like I'm planting expensive grafted trees and fingers crossed for the future. And, and maybe there's even a chance to integrate syntropic agroforestry into this market garden over the, the medium term. Um, so I think I'm just going to go with a very humble open mind and see where I can fit into my local context and I've been back in England actually for the last three weeks now before I go off to South America and I've been seeing opportunities everywhere here that I didn't have the eyes to see before after this experience like all these um, fancy farm shops where they do farm tours where you can go feed the animals it's like well I could be quite easily say look let me have a quarter acre over there and I could grow greens for your restaurant and for your farm shop because they're, they're buying them in for sure like just seeing opportunities where I wouldn't have seen them before I was maybe a bit too ambitious like I want the food forest I want to save the world but again go into the placenta stage start and then see where you can work from there don't run before you can walk I love I'm that advice well, it, it extrapolates out to so many different ways of practicing it too, right? It's not just farming. It's not just homesteading. You don't always have to look at land regeneration or ecological projects through direct work on the land. I mean, that's one of the main agendas that I have through this podcast is to show people all of the different opportunities that they can to participate in this, to, to be a force that helps to propel this movement forward. I mean, uh, you can go and work with somebody else who's doing something that you're interested in, apprentice or take on a mentorship. I know that's something that's been really talked about a lot in the Water Stories course with Zach Weiss that uh, Nick and I are on. And it's such an important aspect for building confidence, building skills and competencies before you go out there and just start wanging plants in and having them all die. Like you can you can have someone guide you through this process. You can uh, preempt a lot of these mistakes with good advice and other people's experience. and uh, yeah, make small manageable mistakes that prevent you from, you know, losing your life savings or going in too deep. And, you know, this happens a lot. Uh, I see it a lot, especially with young people who are self-educated, um, especially through like YouTube videos and books. And, you know, that's where I get a lot of my information too. It's how I stay on top of things, but it's difficult to, with only that amount of information, jump forward and take on a massive project if you actually haven't done it. Uh, there's so many things that are lost and realities that are not communicated through those glossy videos and quick cuts and you know catchy advice. And I know both of you have found that there are realities of this that you can't see until you have the experience. I think that's why I think all of us did woofing farms and work away volunteer opportunities and worked on other people's projects quite extensively before taking on something ourselves. I know it was really valuable for my own experience and I definitely didn't start to take on any clients or projects until I felt comfortable of having worked through some of the biggest problems or gotten some mentorship in order to be able to help others. What have been some of the biggest things that you guys have learned from, I guess, that journey of trying things out in real life as opposed to the way it looks online. Jacob? Yeah, I mean, wow. Yeah, I've tried plenty of things. And it's, again, all about context. 
Um, where are you supplying to? Uh, say, a yoga, uh, supplying a yoga center kitchen is not a market garden for sale. So I've you know, seen a lot of Jean Martin stuff. Um, he's again in a much cooler, moister climate. And I tried to copy some of the things he was doing when all my produce was just going into a, a yoga center, for example. Um, and again, I had limited time and resources and tools as well. And so instead of trying to produce everything as seeing what was growing well at what time of year and just focusing on that really. And with the limited human labor as well, because I didn't have any other paid staff. It was just volunteer labor and the big names, you know, the, the Joel Salatons, the Perkins, as will all tell you that volunteers are a much higher cost they can be a much higher cost than what you get back so we were very heavy on volunteer labor where we were and, and that actually burned me out um so probably would be very very careful going going that route in the future um and the whole swales thing i know there's a lot of swales versus key line things out there and swales in a mediterranean climate we tried a few and I just wasn't fully convinced of the cost benefit, all the energy, all the earth moving. I think a lot more can be done for a lot less energy put in. I'm not saying they're not an appropriate solution in some circumstances, but definitely in these climates where we have no rain for eight months of the year or, or more, that swales and then the mounds on them, they just, they're going to dry out much quicker than piling on the biomass around the trees like the last market garden i was working at in the south spain was a bit more it was mediterranean but they had water so they could grow avocados and other subtropicals and they did that on a swale system and it was using way more much more water to just keep these trees going and producing than the swales were ever going to capture and then that the maintenance of those to cut the grass in between the swales on that hillside was a pain when if that had been planned out just on an, a sloping contour orchard the maintenance would have been a lot easier um, but it made the maintenance very unpleasant and no one really wanted to do it and i don't know what the future holds for it but it's going to be a lot of energy to uh, to keep that going and producing yeah, that's definitely one of the things that I learned too, because if you haven't maintained a system, how are you going to design for the ease of use for it? That's something that I really consider now when I make recommendations, especially for farms, because they're under so much more tight restrictions about how they can manage things for profitability, efficiency, use of machinery, um, personnel expenses, all of that. So effective, efficient systems are much more high priority than homesteaders or yoga retreats, right? And that kind of pragmatism really cuts out a lot of the nonsense and all of the nice things to see that look pretty and that <laughs> show up great on drone videos, but are impossible to get in and maintain. Um, so yeah, I really have learned to design for the longer term maintenance, but if you've never maintained a system, you don't know what that looks like. What about you, Nick? What have been some of your biggest learnings from the practical experiences that you've gained? Uh, I would say the biggest learning is things in books and YouTube videos never work. Um, that, that might be a strong statement, but um, <laughs> in, in your context, uh, they won't work as, as they are depicted there. Um, I think one of the biggest learnings that quite early on the farm, where I was like um, at the beginning of this whole, oh, let's use gray water, let's reuse water. And then I saw these fancy videos about gray water filters. 
And I saw this great system where you use these really big blue barrels and then you put multiple layers of different rocks and sand and charcoal and then you have all these chambers. And so we built one and of course we wanted to build a super nice one. So we already built with three chambers. So three big barrels and because we didn't really have that much slope, we had to put them in the ground. So I think we spent around four weeks of digging into really clay, rocky soil, getting those barrels in and filling them. Um, and then for some reason, like they worked really great at the beginning, but after a few days, the water came out dirtier than it entered. And that was really weird. And so we took them, like we took all the materials out and we put it back in with different layering. Um, and it happened again. And it took us a really long time to realize that the problem was that we just didn't have enough water flowing through the system. So we had a ton of stagnant water in those barrels because they were designed for much bigger systems, but no one tells you that, or maybe some people do, but we definitely missed that information. Um, and so we had so much stagnant water in them that the water that was coming out was completely disgusting and we couldn't use it. Um, and so in the end, like we tried I don't know how many different systems. I, I love prototyping and just, just playing with these systems. So it wasn't really a problem. But in the end now, I just use um, very simple mulch basins. So I just have the gray water coming out into one area where I have a few worms that eat a bit of the, the leftovers that come from the sink. And the rest can just spread in that basin. And there either I plant trees around it or I put some seeds in it. And that works fantastically. So it's, it's the simplest system there is zero maintenance or not zero but very very little maintenance works fantastic and so really the simple solutions are, are often kind of the best so, so that was the biggest wake-up call and since that moment I'm never putting in any fancy systems without trialing them first so I always test the concept does it work kind of the the general workings of, of what, what is described I'm building a small version of it a small model um, and then seeing, okay, this, this can actually work. And then if the concept works, I might build a more fancy version. Um, but that's also one big learning, actually. Those temporary solutions, they are hardly ever temporary. So now I try, if it's temporary, I try to build it in a way that it lasts at least two years. <laughs> so that, that's my like temporary version now. Uh, that, that was a big learning. And I'm really glad that especially through climate farmers and through the work there, we've been able to talk to so many incredible educators around the world and so many really good people. Um, so I think if I would have started with this property a few years ago, yeah, I would have just swaled the shit out of it and just done, done all that. So now I'm really glad to, okay, let's, uh, yeah, let's uh, dumb it down a little and see what really works in the context, do it much slower talk to more people to to really get it context specific um yeah i would say that's the biggest thing like one word context that's what it's all about that's such good advice and i have definitely found the same thing and i actually learned that a lot even before starting to get into ecological work when i was an engineer on ships we we're always talking about every moving part is a potential point of failure right everything that is dependent on something else working right is something else that can go catastrophically wrong and if you're building your most essential energy support systems or resource support systems on these Rube Goldberg type devices, you know, that have all these steps to get to one simple thing, that will fail. It, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how much complexity is needed to fix it or if there's a hard to get part, uh, if that part is far away, even if it's easy to get, like 
Those are all things that are going to make your life so much harder than it needs to be. And we have this tendency, I think, because of how reliant on gadgetry and technology we are in day-to-day life for the most part, to go for these nifty, cool, very high promise uh, types of systems and, and yeah, configurations to get basic things done, right? So you could have a whole machine that like cuts bread for you, toasts it and puts butter on it for you. Or you could also just go through the slight inconvenience of doing that for yourself and have that many less points of failure, right? Um, simplifying, especially in the beginning, is great advice. And you can always add on to that. You can always make it more complex. But if you're dependent on a complex system, it's much more difficult to go back to a simple one and cut pieces out. Um, so yeah, that's that's really essential. Well, look, so we're starting to get to the end of our time. And there's a couple of things that I want to talk about between each of you, because all of our work collaboratively and that we're doing individually needs to be mentioned because we're offering opportunities now for people to get involved, to get these hands-on skills, to work this out in the field and have some guidance. I know, so Jacob, you and I, we taught Centropic Agroforestry at the Green Rebel Farm earlier in the season. And I'm actually gonna be doing another weekend course with them as an intensive introduction to agroforestry, which is gonna be all project-based all hands-on things on a real working farm of people who exactly like we've been mentioning have gone through this process of discovery, started out in urban jobs, urban lifestyles, and made this transition to the countryside. And we've seen, well, from the students that we had last time, there are many other people in this transition really considering agroforestry projects. And they've gotten the concepts, they've gotten the information from books and YouTube and social media but hopefully we can fill in that piece of hands-on training and getting some real experience out there before they take the leap. Um, Nick, why don't you tell people about the series of webinars that we're gonna be teaching for people about what to expect and some of the main considerations to go through before making that leap. Um, yeah, I think it, it came up through a lot of discussions that we had of realizing hey, we moved to places, we, we started projects, and there were so many things that, that we learned along the way. So many, yeah, I'm not going to call them failures, but unscheduled learning experiences. Uh, we had many of those, and I think it really helps to, to give people a chance to avoid the ones that other people already made. Um, it can really bring you much further in, in the process. And yeah, for that, we will just start a series where we talk about the different things we learned, like uh, what you need to look out for when you want to get land, um, when you start getting onto the land, what are the things you can expect, what are the things you really should consider before, during, um, but also then when you're living there, um, taking a lot of um, consideration and what is your context, so what really makes sense for you, um, what doesn't. And I think it's going to be a really, really interesting series of talking about the learnings that we have um, and giving people kind of a heads up and a head start on their own journeys to, yeah, just support people in not making costly, costly errors or costly learning experiences that, that other people already made for them. Yeah, I'm really excited about this series because not only is it the two of us who are going to be talking about this, but our other buddy who works with us at Climate Farmers. Reggie, who's another business consulting mastermind, got tons of experience in coaching startups and other organizations in well, in different parts of the world to find success with their business models, is also going to be helping people to understand how to set up a business in a rural place, because it's not all farming. It's not all land-based enterprises. There's a lot of other ways 
to bring essential services and and goods to rural areas in order to kind of revive these towns. So, you know, if if you're thinking, man, I would love that lifestyle of living in the country and the lower cost and the, the more healthy environment, but I don't know if farming is for me. I don't know if I'm gonna go out and work outside all the time. I still kind of like my job. There are tons of opportunities of how you can contribute to the revival of local economies and the lifestyle that you're looking for without necessarily being dependent on producing crops, right? Oh yeah. There are many support um, support things that can be done for the farms, for the rural communities, um, whether it's value adding products or, or being a distribution of products as well. There are, there are countless things we can be doing to support the regenerative economy. Yeah, as well as many of the services that we get used to in, in cities as well. I mean, we need healthcare workers. We need entrepreneurs. We need people who provide a lot of the things that we got used to and are still essential, even if you live far away, because it's not going to be tenable forever to travel long distances to get to essential services. We need, you know, pharmacists who create, you know, herbal medicines and remedies that you don't necessarily have to go to pharmaceuticals to rely on. I mean, every single thing that we rely on as, as real essential services in the city, there need to be analogs for this. And, you know, they might be a smaller sample size, but you're also not competing against nearly as many service providers or goods providers as you are in an urban area. And there are opportunities in these areas that are, of course, going to be unique to context. And you need to find out where your niche is and how you can add value to these experiences. But those types of practical business considerations is also a main thing that we're going to be talking about. But because it's it's one thing I hear over and over because, I mean, I studied I studied business and I have many of my my old friends from university that are saying like, oh, it's it's so awesome that you're trying or actually doing something for for the climate. And I'm just here stuck in my job because I'm just really good at marketing or design or, or business administration. Um, and what I'm realizing more and more is that those connections are going to be extremely valuable because so many people are really good with plants, are really good with the land. but Obviously, for that reason, don't really have a background in marketing, but they still need to run a business. They still need to do marketing, also design for websites, all these things. And I think that can be a very valuable um, aspect in this whole regenerative movement of getting those people who are really good at the things that are currently used in the corporate world and getting them connected to the people who are really good with, with land management and with plants. And they're making the connections because nowadays everyone needs to do at least some kind of marketing and if you want to support yourself, you need to run some kind of business and getting those people connected. Um, I think that can be a really valuable niche also in that just providing these skills for people who want to do more for the planet. And with that, you don't need to reskill and move from a marketing career to become a farmer, but you can support them with the skills that you already have. And I think making those connections is going to be one of the, the main things that can bring the whole movement much, much further and really get the word out of the people who are good with the ground, but not with Instagram. Yeah, and I know, Jacob, like you're really strong on the community building side. You and I have talked a lot about how you've built a cohesive community around where you've lived in multiple places around the south of Spain and other communities that you've been involved with. You're someone that I go to for advice on how to build those kind of social networks and connections. That's another uh, really, really important aspect of making this move to a rural area. And it's something that you help to coach people to establish for themselves. Yeah, that's right. So I've started doing 
uh, remote consultations so I can help with land advice, how to develop your land, regenerate your land, get things going, but also with the whole context in mind, um, what questions do you need to ask? How can you tap into the the capital in your local area, whether that's social capital, cultural capital, experiential capital, rather than just starting this from scratch, asking those questions, what what capital is available and how can you tap into that without trying to reinvent the wheel and you know saving time energy resources and moving forward more quickly so i've been offering remote consulting uh for a number of people now and it's going really really well it's very easy we have day-to-day contact some of us or or when it's necessary depending on the time of year and what's going on um so i usually do that by via whatsapp or email so if you're interested in that you can contact me via email on jacob evans j-a-c-o-b-e-v-a-n-s 881 at gmail.com um i really need to get a website sorted but you know the move is happening imminently and it will come and also i have a plot of land for sale in central portugal a really nice plot for agroforestry if anyone's interested it's um got planning permission to build a house up to 400 square meters plus outbuildings and decks and things um so 7,000 square meters two hectares great climate it's on the edge of mediterranean and warm temperate so there's already apple trees on the land and a few chestnuts and oaks and you can grow pretty much any mediterranean fruit and nut tree on there it's a very nice climate um to build your house on the edge of a village between the wonderful small city of Tomar and Coimbra, about an hour 45 from Lisbon. So if anyone's interested in a good plot of land with good soil that's not been sprayed for ever, um, then get in touch. I'll get Oliver to put a link in the show notes for my for my building plot that's for sale in central Portugal. Yeah, for sure. I'll put some pictures up on the show notes for this as well. And I mean, I was looking at it seriously for a while when I was looking for uh, a little farmstead to move out to. But because of my context, we have to stay closer to my partner's family. And now we found another option. But uh, yeah, if anybody's looking into making that transition, definitely get in touch with Jacob and take a look at this plot of land. Um, And then, you know, if anybody is also thinking seriously about moving into farming and doesn't necessarily have a lot of experience and could use some assistance, Nick is actually helping us to set up a coach matching service with climate farmers. So specifically it's for people in Europe, but we can also hook you up with professionals, uh, coaches, mentors from around the world who can help you find solutions and to guide you through their experiences to finding success in a farming enterprise. Nick, do you wanna tell them how to get in touch and tap into that service? Um, yeah, just uh, just a little addition. So we have some people who want to get into farming, um, but since we're working with so many incredible coaches um, around the world, we also have a lot of farmers who are realizing they want to kind of expand their current offerings. So we get some quite some requests about people wanting to integrate and look more into agroforestry. We also have a lot of um, arable farmers who are now realizing with the whole drought thing and everything going on, fertilizer prices, uh, we also there offer support how to kind of get away a bit more from the from the chemical inputs and, and from plowing, so a bit more into, into organic um, no-till systems. So it really depends on your context. We're working with, with lots of great people. And yeah, just on our website, on, on the Climate Farmers website, you can easily find it there, the coach matching service. And then we're very happy to get you connected uh, to some of the best people out there and yeah, take your farm uh, a step further. 
Amazing. And yeah, you can even connect with Nick and myself through that service. I've been coaching people through that network and so has Nick in the process. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ways to reach out, to get in touch and to tap into the different services and offerings that we've got if anybody wants to come out and see us in person and learn out in the field. So yeah, let's wrap it up for there. Uh, for the moment, guys, I know we're going to talk again really soon, probably even before any of us want to. So I'll just <laughs> I'll put a bookmark in it for now. And let's catch up again real soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. It's been a big pleasure. Thanks once again to Nick Steiner and Jacob Evans. I've included all of the links for the resources and the contact info that we mentioned there at the end on the show notes for this on the website at regenerativeskills.com. And of course, don't forget to check out the live conversation that Nick and I will be having tomorrow if you want to hear more about making the transition to a country or a land-based lifestyle and want to get your questions answered by us. Now, of course, another way to keep the conversation going is to join the Regenerative Skills Discord server where we're discussing topics like these all the time. Many other listeners like you have also used this space to showcase their own projects and get feedback and new ideas from me and others in the group. You can also help to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, find collaborators and get assistance with your most pressing problems, and it's all happening there. You can, of course, sign up for free on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com or through the link tree on our Instagram. Well, so that wraps things up for this week's episode. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.